Well, amen. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. If you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Thank you, Terry, for sharing earlier on our missions moments. Encourage you to be praying for that project um, and to always be mindful of missions around the world internationally, but also here in our own country and even here locally. Um, but Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 21 is where we'll be today. But this here on the screen is a man by the name of Brian Shaw. Brian Shaw is a man of power. He is 6'8", 420 pounds, and four times has he won the world's strongest man competition. Now, the world's strongest man competition is held every year where men from all around the world, they gather to compete in a variety of strength events. Um, things that I'm asking myself, why are you doing this? I don't understand. But this is what they do. And Brian Shaw has been named the strongest man in the world four times. But I want to look at more kinds of power in this world. For example, the elephant. In brute strength, elephants are the strongest, most powerful mammals and the most powerful land animals. For example, African elephants can carry up to 19,800 pounds. That's the weight of 130 adult human beings. In relation to size, though, the elephant is not the strongest animal or creature in the world. The leafcutter is stronger. Tiny little leafcutter ants can lift and carry in their jaws something 50 times their own body weight. That's the same as a human being lifting a truck with his teeth. It's incredible. But the leafcutter ant is not the strongest. This here is the rhino beetle. Rhinoceros beetles can lift something 850 times their own weight. To put that into perspective... If humans had the strength of the rhinoceros beetle, we would be able to lift a 65-ton object. Now, there's 2,000 pounds in one ton, so 65 tons would be 130,000 pounds if we had the strength of a rhino beetle. And if the mighty elephant had equal strength to the rhinoceros beetle, it would be able to carry 850 elephants on its back. That is a kind of power right there. But the rhino beetle isn't the most powerful. Out of all of these, the winner of the most strongest is the dung beetle right here on the screen. It does get its name from what you think, but a dung beetle can pull 1,141 times their own body weight. This is the equivalent of an average person pulling six double-decker buses full of people. Now that is strength. That is a kind of power. But still, there's another kind of power. And according to different sources, scientists have discovered nature's newest, strongest material. And it comes from the sea snail. Specifically, the teeth of a sea snail. The teeth are so small, they must be examined with a microscope, but this is what they look like. The material the teeth are made out of is as strong as steel and tough as a bulletproof vest. It is capable of withstanding the same amount of pressure it takes to turn carbon into a diamond. So to show you what that looks like, the amount of weight it can withstand can be compared to a strand of spaghetti. 
right? Just think of a str- one strand of spaghetti holding up to more than 3,300 pounds. The weight of an adult female hippopotamus. That's how strong this material is of the sea snail teeth. That is a kind of power. And I could go on and on about different examples in creation, but just think of the most powerful human being, the most powerful animal, the most powerful material, the most powerful country, or the most powerful army, or storm, or energy, or force. All of them combined fail in comparison to the kind of power that Paul is praying for in Ephesians chapter 3. All of them combined fail in comparison to the kind of power that Paul is praying for in Ephesians chapter 3. So look at verse 14 right now. This is what Paul writes. He says, for this reason, what is he talking about? Going all the way back, we'll recap in just a moment, but going back to everything that he's written thus far. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now just stop right there for a moment. While we see examples of people bowing in Scripture, it was common for people in this day and age to stand while praying. So for Paul to include this detail, he is perhaps acknowledging his just awe and humility before the Father. Recognizing God's rule, His sovereignty, His kingship, Lordship, His power. For God calls all people into existence, every family, Jew, Gentile, all nations. He is the Lord over all beings, seen and unseen, and over Lord over all orders of beings. Paul is coming humbly before the Lord and into the presence of the Lord to contend for his readers. And we go on, verse 16. So he bows his knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, so that according to the riches of his glory, God's glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength or power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth or the width and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God's. So today we finish a major section in this book of Ephesians. Really, Ephesians 1 through 3, but specifically the last few weeks, just in chapters 2 and 3. This section which really focuses in on the church. And how the church, the body of Jesus, is a multi-ethnic, multi-gifted, multi-generational group of people who are now united in Christ. They are one in Christ. Up to this point, Paul has established the identity of the church, who we were and who we are now in Jesus. And he'll continue to do that throughout this letter. But he establishes our identity, but he also establishes the unity of the church, that we are one now in Christ. 
So we've seen that in Jesus, hostility ends, division ends. The walls between us and between the Father and us, it ends and unity begins. This does not mean uniformity, but it does mean that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus, as he says in Galatians 3. Our complete identity is wrapped up in Jesus, and so is our unity. It's all of him. And what God was up to was a mystery for ages. But his eternal purpose, the church, which is not man-made, but God-made, created by God, in God, and for God, its identity and unity, this mystery in Jesus, has been revealed and realized. And now... Paul enters into this prayer. And it's a kind of bookend that goes all the way back to the beginning of his letter that we looked at many weeks ago. Where Paul told his readers that he prays for them. And one thing to note in his remarks there in Ephesians 1 is that he prays specifically that we, the church, would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. There in that context, Paul's prayer is that God would reveal to us that we would have the wisdom to know his power that is so great, it's immeasurable. As Psalm 147 says, great is our Lord and abundant in power. As Psalm 62, 11 says, power belongs to God. As we read and learn in Romans 1, God has eternal power. As we learn in Jeremiah 10 and 51, that he, the Lord, made the earth by his power. As we learn in Hebrews 1, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he displayed his power ultimately and fully in the empty tomb. Overcoming the world, pain, suffering, sin, evil, death itself, in bodily resurrection. In Ephesians 1, Paul's prayer is that God would reveal to us that we would have the wisdom to know his power. That is so great, it's immeasurable. Yet, to know that it is available to us, that we have access to it, the church has access to this power. The same power that was at work in creation. The same power that is at work in upholding creation. The same power that, has work, that was at work in the resurrection. The same power involved in God placing Jesus at his right hand. The highest point there is. The same power that will actualize our hope in Jesus at the appearing of Jesus. That will be at work in the new creation. That we would know that power. And know that you and I have access to that power in Jesus. And to tie it into his prayer at the end of Ephesians 3, what Paul is praying is that that power would give us the ability to grasp, to cling to, to know, to understand, specifically the love of Christ. The love that he has for us, his bride, his body, his church, the breadth, 
the length, the height, the depth of his love. The question is, is why? Why is Paul going to such great length to make this his prayer? Well, let's break this down to see. So here Paul prays, and what we just read in Ephesians 3, is that God would allow us to be strengthened mightily. Strengthened with power. According to the riches of his glory. In other words, that God's glory, which is his radiance, his greatness, his splendor, which never runs out. The abundance of richness. It's like a never-ending bank account. His glory. He's praying that his glory would extend to us this mighty power, mighty strength through his spirit. The spirit who changes our identity takes us from death into life, darkness into life, from non-children to children, who changes our identity and who brings unity, the spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity, who is a person, not an it or a thing, the third person of the Trinity, the spirit is the one who produces or gives us his mighty or this mighty inner power. As Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit of God comes upon you. As Paul says in Romans 8.11, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Remember in Ephesians 1, we have access to God's abundant, immeasurable power. The question is, is where are we to be strengthened? Well, this is what Paul is praying. He tells us, in the inner person. In verse 16, that word that he uses for strengthened literally means to become strong psychologically, inwardly. What does he mean then by inner self? Well, most likely he means our moral character, our reasoning, our mind, our thoughts, our will. In other words, through God's work within us, Paul is praying that we would be strengthened in mind, heart, and soul. And this inner strength, as one commentator said, comes from the indwelling Jesus. To have this kind of power explains Christ's presence in you. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I live, it's Christ who lives in me. To have the Spirit in you is to have Jesus in you. Which is huge. Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.24 that Jesus, the Christ, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Paul is praying that the wisdom and power of God would fill us. See, we're told in places like Colossians 1 and, chap- and also in chapter 2 of Colossians that Jesus is the fullness of deity in human form. That God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus told in 1 Corinthians that he is the wisdom and power of God. Well, in the same way that the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus, so Paul is praying that the fullness of Christ would dwell in you. That we, the church, would be the exact imprint of God's very nature, his character. That we, the church, would bear the image of of Jesus, inwardly and outwardly. It's as Jesus said in John 14, because I live, you also will live. And in the context, is talking about him sending us the Holy Spirit who will come upon us and we will receive power. 
He says, on that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Even Peter talks about this in 2 Peter, where he talks about us becoming participants of the divine nature. Paul is praying that you and I would bear the image of Jesus inwardly and outwardly. And this is true individually for the believer, yes. But in context, Paul means the church, the body of Jesus. As another commentator said, what Paul is praying is that Christ's values and virtues would take up permanent residence in the center of our very being. That we would continue to grow and grow in this power, this psychological inner self-strength. That Jesus would be ever more effective in us as we become more and more like Jesus, conformed to his image in everything and in every way. And this is all carried out, he says, through faith. Remember, by faith or by grace you've been saved through faith. It is through faith that you have entered into this grace, into this new identity and unity and so on. As Paul said in Galatians 2.20, that same contest, he says, I now live by faith. We live trusting God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, leaning not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledging Him. We walk by faith now, not by sight. Even Peter's words in 1 Peter says, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. We live by faith. And all of this, Paul is praying, is so that we would become rooted and grounded in love. He uses two really beautiful analogies here, one from botany and one from architecture. And both of them carry with it this idea of power and strength, this firmness that's rooted you are grounded and the soil in both of these illustrations is love the dirt pad is love the dirt in which those roots go down deep is love and he prays this so that we would have the strength the ability the power, the power that is immeasurable that we have access to, like we learn in Ephesians 1, so that we would have the power to grasp, to comprehend with all the saints, to know the love of Christ, which is beyond knowledge. It's beyond books. It's beyond facts. It's beyond reasoning. It's beyond knowledge. It's beyond expression. Yet he's praying that we would actually still yet know it. Intellectually, yes, but also personally and experientially. Not just intellectual speculation, but actually truly know the love of Christ. Think of it like this, the ocean. I could grow up and stay in Oklahoma my entire life, never leaving the state. And I could study the ocean. I could read books on the ocean. I could watch videos on the ocean. I could learn about its length and its width and its depth and its height. I can know all about the waves. I can know all about the currents and and the tides. I I can know everything there is to know about the ocean just sitting right here in Oklahoma. But that's a lot different kind of thing than actually traveling to the coast, stepping into the water, smelling the salt, seeing for myself the vastness of the ocean, 
And they begin to walk into the water deeper and deeper and deeper. It becomes a radically different kind of experience at that moment. What Paul is praying is not that you and I just know the love of Christ intellectually, but that we know it by experience. This love that is beyond knowledge. He wants us to know it personally, intellectually, and experientially. Yet here's the thing. Grasping the love of Christ, growing in the love of Christ, only comes in the context of the community, the church. The entire context here is the church. This true understanding of God's love is not individualistic experience. It takes place in the community. For God lives in community, three in one. It follows that his body will also live in community. There is no such thing as I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. It's biblically illogical and contradictory. Remember, he's not just calling us from something, though he is calling us from death and darkness and slavery, but he's also calling us into something. He's calling us into community. And into love. After all, as John would say, God is love. And as one commentator said, not only must love work itself out only in the context of the body, it can only be truly understood there in the body of Jesus. Love cannot be grasped in isolation from other members of the body of Jesus in the same way that the ocean cannot be fully grasped while forever hiding out in Oklahoma. For example here, Paul uses words to describe the physical dimensions of an object or of something. Depth, length, height, width. All these words, at least the first three, are used to describe the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21.16. And we know that the new Jerusalem, as we've seen in Revelation 21.9, is the bride of the Lamb. It's the church. In other words, the love of God, as what Paul has already declared, is displayed, manifested, is made known in and through the community of his people. This is the wisdom of God on display, the church. So if you want to know what love is, look to the church. The wisdom of God on display, the power of God on display, the love of God on display, the people that he gave everything for at Calvary. And nothing will separate his community from this love. Paul makes that clear in Romans 8. Jesus made that clear that no one will snatch you from my hands. But here's the thing. This is what it all means ultimately for Paul. What Paul is ultimately praying, what he wants, and this becomes clear as we keep reading, is for the church to live and love like Christ. Specifically, he wants us to know love and to Live love. In doing so, the fullness of God will be made manifest in us and through us. See, it follows that our identity change and our unity in Jesus will lead us to embody and express the image of love towards one another. Thus, this is why John writes in 1 John, he says, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God, and everyone who loves 
has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. See, for John, love is a person. That person is God himself. God is the embodiment and the very definition of love. Thus, if you're in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit of God in you. Therefore, you have love in you. Therefore, it follows that you will embody and express love towards each other. You will labor for one another. You will toil for one another. Why? Because everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well, whoever has been born of God. It follows that if you love God, you will love his children, those born of God. Why? Because the same spirit living in you lives in them, and you have become one with them. One of the most famous stories that Jesus told was the Good Samaritan. And the story was prompted because a question was posed about eternal life which led Jesus and this man to start talking about love. It's very interesting, which leads to a story about what that love looks like when it is embodied and expressed, when it is lived out. And we know the story. There's a guy going out, and he's on this known as a dangerous road in that time, and he is robbed, beaten up, left for dead there on the side of the road, and there comes walking along a priest Uh, a a Levite, and then a Samaritan. And who is it that gets involved? Who is it that gets dirty? Who is it that expresses and embodies love towards this broken person? It's the Samaritan. Despite the cost, despite what others might think, despite how uncomfortable it might have been for him, despite how inconvenienced he might have been, he got messy, involved, and he served At the end of the story, Jesus then asked this man who showed love. In other words, who was a neighbor to this person? Who do you think actually and honestly and authentically embodied and expressed love towards this person? Well, the man replies, it was that one who helped him. Couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Meaning, remember the context initially started with eternal life. You want eternal life? If you want to say that you know God, then this must be the character, the very definition of your life. This must be the kind of love that you embody and express, a kind of love that only comes from being born again. Because it is a love that surpasses knowledge. And if it's still not clear to us, well, what does that love really look like embodied and expressed? If we're still struggling to know what this love, really a glimpse of it is, then all we must do is look to the cross. To come, to sit, and behold the cross. As Paul says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And John would say, this is how we even know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Rebellious sinners. Thus, we ought to lay down our lives 
for our brothers and sisters. Thus, we ought to live love. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the human body and he relates it to the church. And then he transitions to talking about love, and love is patient and it is kind. A love that surpasses knowledge, he begins to describe. But what he's saying in 1 Corinthians is that you and I are to embody and express this love that is beyond knowledge, the same love in which Christ loved us. We are to live love. But to close, you might be thinking, well, how is that possible? That we can live such a love. Well, this brings us to verse 20 and 21. The great doxology, the great ending. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations, forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. This is true. God is able. Nothing is incapable with God. All things are possible with God. God can perform the unthinkable because his power is quite beyond all measure. One commentator said, neither the boldest human prayer nor the greatest power of human imagination could restrict God's ability to act. So how can we live love like Jesus? We, we can because of his power at work within us. I'll close with this quote. Spurgeon said this, omnipotent love and all powerful love will not allow omniscience To recollect your sin. I will remember their sin no more. To know that love. To live that love among the church. That is Paul's prayer. So with heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to invite John and the team forward for a time of response. And my challenge to us in this time is to pray what Paul prays. That we would bend our knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of His glory that He may grant us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and so that we being rooted and grounded in love may have strength or power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we would be filled with all the fullness 
of God? And should we doubt that He can do this? Let us pray also to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Stand with me as we have this time of response. You come down here if you need to pray, if you need to talk to me, you have a decision to make. Now's the time to respond as we sing.